In Luke chapter 23, beginning with verse 13, we see the continuation of the story that we have been examining for some weeks now. As Jesus has been arrested, brought before the Sanhedrin, brought before Pilate, brought before Herod, and now back to Pilate again. We pick up, as I say, in verse 13. Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers and the people. And he said to them, You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. No, nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us. And behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Therefore I will punish him and release him. Now he was obliged to release to them at the feast one prisoner. But they cried out all together, saying, Away with this man and release for us Barabbas. He was one who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection made in the city, And for murder. Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again, but they kept on calling out, saying, Crucify, crucify him. And he said to them a third time, Why? What evil has this man done? I have found in him no guilt demanding death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. But they were insistent, with loud voices asking that he be crucified, and their voices began to prevail. And Pilate pronounced sentence that their demand be granted. And he released the man they were asking for, who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. But he delivered Jesus to their will. Father, give us insight into your word this morning. We know that you have a purpose in your word, that it is profitable for us. And so, Father, we pray that we would realize that profitability as together we meditate upon your word today. In Christ's name, amen. I wonder... If you were asked, what is the greatest injustice that the world has ever known, how you would respond? We live in a world that is, on the one hand, full of love and hope and joy and delight, but on the other hand, full of pain and heartache and sorrow. Some would say that poverty is the greatest injustice. Others would say starvation, racism, child abuse, inequality of one sort or another, war. There could be many answers that the world might give to that question. You may be able to think of many other answers. But surely the greatest injustice in the world is the injustice of Jesus' death. 
Jesus had never done anything wrong in his entire life. He was completely sinless. Never thought a sinful thought, never said a sinful word, never committed a sinful deed. It is impossible for us to comprehend completely what it means to live a totally sinless life. Because none of us ever have, and none of us have ever met anyone who has. But Jesus was sinless. And yet he was condemned to die as a criminal of the lowest order. And as we saw last week, not even Herod nor Pilate could find anything by which to declare him guilty. And yet in spite of his obvious innocence, Jesus breathes his last from a Roman cross. And our passage this morning tells us how. How does that happen? How does one who is confirmed to be innocent, guiltless, sinless, by the powers that be, nevertheless end up on the cross? Well, as we examine this passage this morning, the first thing we see is the conclusion to which this vacillating Pilate finally comes. After his first interview with Jesus, Pilate sent him off to Herod because Jesus was from Galilee and Herod was responsible for overseeing the region of Galilee and all the Galilean affairs. Herod was glad to see Jesus because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see a show. He knew that Jesus was a miracle worker and Herod wanted to see some tricks. But Jesus refused to humor Herod. Jesus never even responded to Herod, didn't say a word to him at all. And when Herod realized that Jesus would not perform for him or even answer his questions, he and his soldiers treated Jesus with contempt and mocked him and then sent him back to Pilate. Which must have disappointed Pilate greatly. Because Pilate thought he had gotten rid of the problem. Pilate didn't want to have anything to do with Jesus. He had hoped that he had pawned him off on Herod once and for all. Nevertheless, he had already said that he found no guilt in Jesus, and now that Jesus had been returned to him, Pilate found no reason to reconsider that assessment. He simply repeats it. I still find no guilt in this man. He brought the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. So you have Pilate using the Roman legal system of justice and he doesn't find any guilt in Jesus. You have Herod using the Jewish legal system of justice. And Herod doesn't find Jesus to be guilty of anything either. 
You look at the way Herod treated Jesus with such contempt and mockery, and you know that he has no soft spot for Jesus, so it's not as if he had any kind of ethical concerns about finding Jesus guilty. If he could have, he would have. Would have happily condemned him if there was even the smallest iota of any wrongdoing in Jesus, but there was none. Pilate found none. Herod found none. Even the Sanhedrin could not find any actual guilt, which is why they had to manufacture false charges and bring in false witnesses. Now, when we consider Pilate, we need to remember that Pilate was a politician. By nature, politicians are deal-makers. It's what they do. They try to negotiate and compromise in order to bring the largest number of people possible over to their way of thinking. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it can be. Compromise and deal-making become bad things when they're utilized for selfish reasons. When one's only purpose is to avoid conflict or save one's own skin, and that's what Pilate is trying to do. Pilate put forward a proposal that was designed to do two things. First, if he could, to save Jesus. And second, to get the religious leaders off his back. And so he says to them in verse 16, I will punish him and release him. So apparently, under Roman law, it was permissible to give a person charged with a crime a light beating along with a warning so that the accused person would watch his behavior in the future and then let him go. And Pilate was hoping that by suggesting a lesser punishment than the death sentence, he would appease the Jewish leaders. Of course, to punish someone who is innocent, no matter how light the relative punishment, is still an injustice. Now, Pilate was not just a politician. He was also a ruthless man. And we know about Pilate from accounts outside of the scripture. Shortly after he had begun his role as the procurator of Judea, he created a great deal of ill will among the Jews. His predecessors had always had their Roman soldiers remove the images of Caesar from their standards as they marched through the city. And the reason for this, of course, was that the Jews believed that such images violated the law, which they did. They wanted no part of images, and that was certainly true of images that asserted that the Roman emperor was a god, which these did. So Pilate refused to do what his predecessors had done. He just told his Roman soldiers, keep the images of Caesar on your standards and put it in the face of the Jews. It's as if he was inviting conflict which he did. As a result of this, there was a riot. And the Roman soldiers came down to squash the riot, but the Jews laid themselves down on the ground 
and bared their necks to the Roman swords, willing to die for their convictions. And Pilate was forced to relent. He recalled the soldiers. He had them remove the images from their standards from then on. He was not a wise ruler. On another occasion, Pilate got the Jews upset when he took money from the temple treasury to pay for an aqueduct that he was building. Just imagine the government coming and taking our bank accounts, taking our fellowship fund, taking our missions money to go and do something that they think is important. Well, obviously, once again, the Jews were outraged. And the response of Pilate was to send in his soldiers and anyone who objected was to be harshly beaten. Eventually, Pilate was removed from office. Samaritans had gathered to worship on Mount Gerizim and for some reason, Pilate took exception to this. He ordered his cavalry to attack the Samaritans and by the time it was over, dozens of them had been killed. Rome did not think this was appropriate because all Rome was concerned about was to keep the peace. And this was not keeping the peace. This was inviting rebellion. And so Pilate was removed from office. And contemporary reports say that while Pilate was on his way to Rome, he took his own life. Maybe. As is typical in such situations, there are suspicions that maybe he wasn't, maybe he didn't really commit suicide, but was rather murdered on the way. Of course, if he anticipated what would happen to him when he got to Rome, he very well may have taken his own life. In any case, if Pilate was such a ruthless leader as he seems to have been, why then was he working so hard? to get Jesus acquitted. Part of it surely may have been that he did really think Jesus was innocent. But a man like Pilate would not have lost very much sleep over an injustice like that. It's just some Jewish rabbi as far as Pilate's concerned. There must be more than that. Another reason why Pilate worked so hard to get Jesus acquitted is probably that he simply didn't like the religious leaders. They were constantly having conflicts. They were constantly butting heads. He didn't like them. They didn't like him. But scripture tells us there's another reason as well. His wife. Wives can be great motivators, can't they? Matthew tells us in his gospel that while Pilate was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him. So Luke doesn't tell us this, but Matthew does. While all this is going on, while while Pilate is involved in the trial of Jesus, he's sitting there on the judgment seat, his wife sends him a note. And here's what it said have nothing to do with that righteous man. 
For I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. So Pilate's wife has a dream about Jesus. And somehow in this dream it is communicated to Pilate's wife, this, as far as we know, pagan woman, that Jesus is a righteous man. And something about this dream has caused her to suffer a great deal. We don't know what his wife dreamed. We don't know how she knew Jesus was a righteous man. We don't know the nature of her suffering because of the dream. All we know is that she thought it important enough to send a word to her husband saying, have nothing to do with this righteous man. And here again, is yet another assertion of Jesus' innocence. This time, coming from someone who knew nothing about him except what she learned about him in a dream. Here, it becomes clear, once again, that Luke wants his readers to see the complete and total innocence of Jesus. In every way possible, he has emphasized the fact that Jesus was completely and fully innocent of any wrongdoing. In just a few hours, Jesus is going to die as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he could only do that if he was a lamb without spot or blemish. We would have no hope of salvation if our supposed Savior were as sinful as the rest of us. Praise God, Jesus was completely and perfectly innocent in every way. Now once Luke has told us about Pilate, he then turns to the Jews. Pilate had earlier called together the chief priests and rulers of the people. You see that in verse 13. Perhaps he had hoped that the people would back him in his initial assessment of Jesus' innocence. But note what happens, beginning with verse 18. They cried out all together, saying, Away with this man, and release for us Barabbas. He was one who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection made in the city and for murder. Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again, but they kept on calling out, saying, Crucify, crucify him. And he said to them a third time, Why? What evil has this man done? I have found in him no guilt demanding death. Therefore I will punish him and release him. Now when we look at the other Gospels, we learn why Pilate capitulated to the demands of the Jews. John tells us in chapter 19 that from then on, Pilate sought to release Jesus, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. So Pilate's under a great deal of pressure. And in order to save himself... Pilate is going to put to death 
a man he knows to be innocent. The Jews had Pilate over a barrel. They knew that he was already in hot water with Caesar. Pilate's relationship with the Jews was not good. And Caesar did not treat well those who failed him. Pilate's job was simply to keep things calm. And it seems that every decision he made did just the opposite. And Pilate noticed that the Jews were demanding with ever louder cries that Jesus should be crucified and ultimately their desire prevails. Verse 23 says they were insistent with loud voices asking that he be crucified and their voices began to prevail. Jesus should have been released, but he was not. He was unjustly sentenced to death. And the question is, who is responsible for this injustice? The Bible makes it clear that the Jewish people were responsible But not only the Jewish people, also the Romans. When the Apostle Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost, he said to the people of Jerusalem, you crucified and killed your Messiah. Later on, Peter said to them of Jesus, he is the one whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. But in addition to that, The Jewish leaders were also responsible, not just the people. The people followed the leaders. Peter says to the Sanhedrin that the Jewish leaders were out for their blood. He says, this is the one whom you have crucified. You killed him by hanging him on a tree. But it was not... just the Jewish leaders and the Jewish people. As we said, it is also the Romans, Pilate, the soldiers, along with Herod. They were also responsible for his death. They knew that Jesus was not guilty of anything deserving death. He was not even deserving of a lesser punishment. He was completely and utterly innocent, so Pilate and the Romans are culpable as well for the injustice of Jesus' death. All are guilty, not just the Jews. Frivolous Herod and corrupt Pilate are guilty too. Treacherous Judas is guilty. So is Peter. And so are the rest of the disciples. They are all sucked into the vortex of Satan's plan to destroy the Son of God, which is really God's plan to bring redemption to his people. And each one of us has to decide what to do with Jesus. The Jews were furious in their hatred of Jesus, and they certainly wanted him dead. I don't imagine that you would be here today if that was your attitude. This is not the place people come if they hate Christ and hate Christianity. In the end, however, Pilate capitulated, even though he did not want Jesus dead. And he had him crucified. Peter loved Jesus, and then denied him. The 
real problem with Pilate, of course, is that he was confronted by the truth himself, but he didn't believe him. Phil Riken said, Pontius Pilate recognized that Jesus was an innocent man, yet he refused to receive him as the Savior or worship him as the King. Sadly, he never did solve his problem, but ended up doing the wrong thing. And every time we proclaim the gospel, this is the question we're asking. What will you do with Jesus? In the end, of course, Jesus is condemned. Pilate pronounced sentence, verse 24, that their demand be granted. And he released the man they were asking for, who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Luke frequently uses irony in his gospel. And we have one such example here. Jesus, who was entirely innocent, had been accused and condemned for insurrection, while Barabbas was released, even though he had been found guilty of insurrection and murder to boot. Another irony here is that Barabbas' name means son of the father. So the people are crying out for the release of one called Son of the Father while rejecting the one who is literally the Son of the Father. What we have before us is a wonderful illustration of the principle of substitution. J.C. Ryle puts it this way, two persons were before him. And he must needs release one of the two. The one was a sinner against God and man, a malefactor, stained with many crimes. The other was the holy, harmless, and undefiled Son of God, in whom there was no fault at all. And yet Pilate condemns the innocent prisoner and acquits the guilty. He orders Barabbas to be set free and delivers Jesus to be crucified. And we are Barabbas. We are guilty of all kinds of sin against God and against one another. We deserve to be sentenced to die for our sins. We deserve to be sent to hell for eternity. Jesus, on the other hand, is the sinless, guiltless Son of God. God is willing to set us free if we will put our trust in Jesus Christ. It is what Luther referred to as the great exchange. One commentator invites us to consider the result of Pilate's decision. Barabbas and Jesus changed places. The murderer's bonds, curse, disgrace, and mortal agony are transferred to the righteous Jesus while the liberty, innocence, safety, and well-being of the Immaculate Nazarene become the lot of of the murderer. Barabbas is installed in all the rights and privileges of Jesus Christ, while the latter enters upon the infamy and horror of the rebel's position. 
both mutually inherit each other's situation and what they possess. The delinquent's guilt and cross become the lot of the just one, and all the civil rights and immunities of the latter are the property of the delinquent. And that is the illustration of our salvation. Like Barabbas, we are dead in our sins and doomed to die, but an exchange has taken place in which Jesus takes our place so that we can take his. The innocent one is condemned to die in our place. The true son of the Father takes upon himself the guilt of all our sin and therefore is condemned to suffer the wrath of God. He does this in his death on the cross. But at the same time, his crucifixion is for our justification. His condemnation is our pardon. His bondage is our release. This this is the gospel. Jesus dying in our place as a substitute, suffering the death that we deserve to die. That's the gospel. The exchange of Jesus and Barabbas is such a powerful irony. And his power comes because it is such a clear picture of substitution. A letter from the early church has survived down to this day. It's called the Epistle to Diognetus. And there's this wonderful description of substitution in the letter. It reads as follows. He himself took on him the burden of our iniquities. He gave his own son as a ransom for us, the holy one for transgressors, the blameless one for the wicked, the righteous one for the unrighteous, the incorruptible one for the corruptible, the immortal one for them that are mortal. For what other thing was capable of covering our sins than his righteousness? By what other one was it possible that we, the wicked and the ungodly, could be justified than by the only Son of God? Oh, sweet exchange. Oh, unsearchable operation. Oh, benefits surpassing all expectation that the the wickedness of many should be hid in a single righteous one and that the righteousness of one should justify the many transgressors. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. It teaches us about the the wonderful exchange that is possible when we ask Jesus to take our place. He will pay the penalty for all of our sin, and we are declared righteous, and we are set free. If you have not put your trust in Jesus, do so today. He still, he still is the substitute. He is the one who has taken upon himself the sin of man and the wrath of God. But it will only be applicable to you through repentance and faith. Repent of your sin and trust in Christ. And then he will be your savior. He will take your punishment. He will be Emmanuel, God with you. 
Father, thank you for the sacrifice which has accomplished our redemption. We are so grateful for it, Father. We thank you that you have done it all through Jesus. And there is nothing left for us to do but to believe, to trust. Father, may any who are here today, may any who listen to this in the future who do not know you be drawn to your Son. May they come to know the grace which can be theirs through repentance and faith. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.